Let's go back to uh, Romans chapter 8 and uh, uh, advance our, our study <laughs> by a total of one word. Um, we, are, we, are, uh, we are breezing right along here. Um, the text that's under consideration uh, and has been for, uh, for some time is verses 29 and 30. If I could read those to you um, as we begin. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Um, That's not one sentence, but it certainly is one major thought. Uh, The thought that you have there that uh, that is known by so many of you is, that there is a chain, there is a, there is a link between uh, five different things that, uh, that God has done. Um, it, it starts off with, uh, for those whom he foreknew, um, them he predestined, and them he predestined, them he also called, and those who he called, them he also justified, and those whom he justified, those he also glorified. Now, um, we, we've... We've treated this word, um, we've treated this word, and, um, you know, uh, nobody got bloodied. Um, and then last week, we tried to look at that last clause of verse 29, which is um, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's what we looked at last week. And so we come to verse 30 tonight, and, and you will notice that there's some kind of a connection, it, it kind of swings back. And those whom he predestined. So uh, this is where, where we left off in terms of the five words. And then he mentions that again and then introduces a new word, the word called. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. Um, uh, those whom he foreknew, he predestined, and then he predestined, and then he also called. So that's under our, our consideration for tonight. Now, guys, um, the... I'm not sure how familiar you are with the whole subject of calling. In theological uh, treatises, I mean, if you've, if you've got a systematics, and, uh, that is a systematic uh, volume, a volume of systematic theology, you might find this under the heading of effectual um, calling. It's normally listed in, in, a, in a, a systematics treatise. But the word is not effectual calling there, but that's what it's usually, uh, that's where it's usually discussed, under this idea of effectual calling. The, the idea of calling is found quite frequently in the New Testament. In fact, uh, as early as verse 28. You remember, um, we looked at verse 28 all fall, and we know that those who, um, and, and we, that all things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. And interestingly enough, in uh, verse 28, um, the word called is used as a synonym. You'll notice that, do uh, you remember in your old English, um, an appositive? Do you remember what an appositive was? Um, it was something that was equated with something else. And the called are basically equated with the lovers of God. Uh, uh, we know that all things work together for good to those that love God and are the called. Um, people who love God are called. And people who are called love God. These two are in apposition. They're synonyms. 
So the synonym that's used in, in verse 28 for, for being called is that they love God. Now, gang, the, um, the, the, the Christian life begins with a call. Um, what I want to do to try and explain, I don't know whether that word needs much explanation, but maybe it, uh, it's circulated in your minds before, but um, what I want to do is show you uh, a passage, if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, where the word call does not appear, but the calling does appear. And I think you'll see that rather readily. And, and what I want to do is try and explain the term called by really taking a look at this passage in, Roman, in Matthew chapter 9. It's a very familiar passage. Actually, I only really don't want to read you one verse. It's in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. And Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. There it is. And he rose and followed. Now, what I'm suggesting, gang, is that you can understand that word by looking at this event. This event fills up what this means. This is an illustration of a calling, of an effectual calling. Jesus walks up to Simon, uh, to, to Matthew's uh, um, tax collector table and says, and that's all it took. And you, you notice the immediate response, he rose and he followed. Now, what I want to try to do is just kind of drain that little event uh, to help simply define the term called, which is found in Romans 8.30. First of all, the first thing that I would have you note about calling is that God is the author of it. He is the author and the initiator of it. That is, um, we do not call ourselves. Matthew is sitting seated at a table. Who knows what's been going on in his life heretofore, but he is not out beating the bushes trying to find Jesus. Jesus finds him at a, at a, at a table and calls him. Um, this is out of 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ. There's another statement that I want to read to you found in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, uh, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. All I'm, all I'm trying to point out here that you will note very clearly in the Matthew, the Matthew 9 passage is that Jesus is, that God is the author and he is the initiator of this thing that we call calling. If you'll, if you've got a finger back in Romans chapter 8, I would have you note in verse um, 30 the repetition of the pronoun he. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God is the author of this thing known as calling. 
He is the initiator of this thing called calling. Believers are called according to a settled plan, which we introduced to you back in the words, back in these two words. And I, you might recall I said something about um, uh, the whole idea that God has a plan. It might be new news to some of you, but God has called us into a fellowship with the Son according to a settled plan, as you see um, hinted at at those, those two words and, of course, elsewhere. Now, how the call, un- this, this is the tricky part, because um, I, I'm not saying by any means that Matthew's experience is to be your experience in terms of its detail. Uh, we must not make uh, what happens to Matthew or anybody else in the New Testament normative for everybody. For instance, how was the Apostle Paul saved? Well, he was on the road to Damascus, and all of a sudden he gets struck down by a, 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 a bolt of light, and then, you know, then he goes blind into the city, and, you know, and then Ananias comes and visits. Anybody been on the road to Damascus lately? Anybody been struck down by a bolt of lightning lately? Well, all I'm, I'm trying to say is that how this calling unfolds differs from person to person. You know, um, I, I, I think I may have told you this story before. Um, I mean, when you're here for 15 years, you start repeating yourself. That's part of the problem, the 15 years. The other part of the problem is the 58 years. Uh, so you start repeating yourself. But um, um, Susie will remember this. Um, when Susie and I were dating, uh, uh, you know, she was in Memphis and I was at Knoxville, and and um, and she came up every time she could get a chance, and or I mean, I wanted her up every time I could get her up there, and and um, uh, in the spring of really before we were to marry, we were going to marry get married in July. Um, in the spring, she came up to visit me, and um, on that particular occasion, uh, a celebrity was in town. His last name was um, Graham. Billy Graham. Maybe you've heard of him. Well, Billy was in, was in town. He was in um, uh, Knoxville, and he was appearing at the stadium there in Knoxville, um, Nayland Stadium. And on that particular occasion, he was accompanied by another fairly famous person. His name was Nixon. Richard Milhouse Nixon, the President of the United States, came and appeared with Billy Graham at this uh, crusade. And so, you know, my, my, my future wife's there, and, you know, we're kind of religious folk, and, and uh, you know, we, we at least wanted people to think we were. And, and so we went to this thing. And, um, you know, we both very religious attenders. And, you know, we were very regular in our attendance. And, and so he sat in the bleachers with everybody else. And I, and I, I mean, I don't forget how many folks were there, but it was pretty crowded. And then they had the invitation at the end. And, uh, you know, y- y'all come on down and all that business. And so... Um, Susie and I, you know, we, we headed down there. And so one of those, the workers, one of the, uh, you know, the, 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 I don't know what they call them, the, the helpers, uh, got a hold of us. It was a woman, and, and she, said, she said, are y'all here for a profession of faith or a rededication? Well, we didn't know what that profession thing meant, but we had heard that word rededication before. And so he said, oh, we're down here for the rededication. Put us down for one of those rededication things, <laughs> and we were we were we were lost as a ball in high weeds, both of us. But um, um, uh, you know, so they marked us down for rededication. We, you know, you know. But all of that to say this: when I look back on um, on both my wife and myself becoming Christians in September of 1970, 
it seems to me that this began. Maybe not in that stadium, but it's certainly one of its high points. I don't know how it happened for you. And we have to be careful not to make normative any of the details of our calling. But ladies and gentlemen, if you are a Christian, it's because God initiated sovereignly to call you to Himself. The details will vary for us, guys, from front to back. Some of you snuck into the kingdom. Some of you were raised in the church and didn't know any better, and all of a sudden you woke up one day and you said, you know what, that Jesus stuff is what I believe. Yes, yes. And you just kind of woke up one day and there you were. But it wasn't that way for all of us. There's something that God was up to in beginning to draw. And, and that, that drawing is a part of this effectual calling. It will unfold differently in people's lives, and it will look differently. But if you're a Christian tonight, you are a lover of God, it's because He has called you. Now, this might, this might unnerve some of you, but I, I need to point it out to you nonetheless. The, the New Testament makes a distinction between a universal call from a saving call. For instance, this is a text that's familiar to most of you, I think. Uh, it's in Matthew chapter 22, verse 14. It says, for many are called, but few are chosen. You're going to have to wrestle around and chew on that a little bit. But the New Testament makes a distinction from the call that I give, which is a universal come to Christ, and this thing that God initiates, that God sponsors called an effectual call. And I don't know how it showed up in your life, but I'm telling you, if you sit here tonight committed to Jesus Christ, it's because God called you. Now, the agent of that call is, of course, God the Holy Spirit. Um, And in that work of His, this marvelously mystical work of his, he creates within his people a a, a new, a a whole new set of desires. A a whole new principle of life is, is put within us. And we begin to see things differently. And and I want you to, let me not go back with me to the Matthew uh, story, but once this calling takes place in the life of Matthew, something's happened on the inside of this man. Something so radical, so drastic, perhaps so unmeasurable, but that he can never look at life the same. He can never taste it in quite the same way. He sees everything differently. Now, having said that, let me... uh, um, you know, guys, um, I don't know how many, how many of you have any, um, know many doctors. I, I don't know that many doctors. There are a few in this church, but one of them that, that I, I know a little bit about his life is Ed Cattu, who's sitting right over here in the blue tie. And from time to time, um, Ed Cattu is on call. You know, he gets a weekend every five or six years that he has to work. Um, that's just a joke. 
Uh, but he gets this weekend where he's on call. And if you're ever with him, I mean, if you're going out to supper with the Katoos and he's on call, you're never knowing whether you're going to ever get to, uh, get to finish a supper because something will begin to vibrate or something will go ding dong. And, uh, you know, in the old days, they used to head for the, you know, the phone booth and they'd call in, they'd come back and they'd say, well, we got to go to, but nowadays you just pick him to pocket and he'd be, you know, call because he's on call. Here's my point. Who are these people who have lost control of their schedule? They're people who are on call. The primary characteristic of people who are, who have been called is that they recognize and, and, and glory in the fact that they are not any longer in control. They find something wonderful about the acknowledgement that no, I am no longer in control because of the call. The call has, has done something inside of me that has made me forever different. And I am no longer, I am no longer in charge. Being called, guys, my point is, means that you are no longer in control. And we find that exhilarating. Um, guys, left to ourselves, just like Matthew, you would never desire what Jesus has asked for. Hey, come follow me. If, if, if left to himself, he would have stayed right behind that, that tax collector booth and never gone anywhere. But once that call overtakes him, he finds following this Nazarene to be urgent. And so he leaves this stuff behind and gets to following. Guys, listen. If you find yourself at home in the filth of this present world, it's because you've never been called. If that tax collector booth is something that still enchants you, and you find your very essence and being right there in a, in a swing of it. It's because this call has never overtaken you. People who have been called realize I'm not in charge anymore. And as a result of that thing, I find myself with a whole new set of desires. A whole new set of values. A whole new set of interests. They, they, they wax and wane. That is, they, they, they're really strong at one point and they may, uh, you know, diminish for a while. But in the main, these things now control me. This call comes fully equipped with a whole new value system. And I simply can't view things the same way any longer. And if the rot gut filth of this culture of ours is the place where you find the most comfort, it's because this has not happened.
just yet. I want to. I want to. I ain't got but eight minutes, seven minutes, and I want to do something. Is what I'm trying to do is give you characteristics of of that thing. It's interesting that Floyd and Shirley are here because Floyd and Shirley gave me this book. I, I have treasured it. Um, he gave it to me in 1996, so I've had it um, almost 10 years. It'll be it's, anyway. This is. I don't even know how to tell you this. I don't even know how to tell you how old this is. This is a copy of Pilgrim's Progress. I mean, this is this is this is the real thing. Now, I have a grace group, and we we study Pilgrim's Progress. Um, and um, I'm going to read you just a bit of this, I, and I won't take long because this you probably can't understand. I mean, the language is so exalted. Um, but um, there is an episode. If you know anything about Pilgrim's Progress. The, next to the Bible, it's the most um, uh, frequently printed book in the English language. Uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It is a classic. If you've never read it, there's Children's Pilgrim's Pro- uh, Progress. You need to get one for your children and read it to your children. Uh, there are, there are, it's one of the books that we read to our children. It's called The Dangerous Journey. Uh, Pilgrim, of course, is a Christian. He comes out of the city of destruction. Uh, he gets converted, and, and he's headed to the, uh, the heavenly city. It's just the, it's, it's Bunyan's way of communicating uh, and defining the Christian life. This is what I do in my grace group every time. Pilgrim's Progress. It's just, in my opinion, it's a piece of genius. But anyway, uh, and, it's a, and it's an extended allegory. It's an, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an allegory. It's an extended metaphor and an allegory. So, so people, for instance, the character that I want to read you about is a guy by the name of Talkative. And um, Faithful is uh, walking on this path with Talkative. And one of, um, uh, and, and Christian is also on the path, I think, yes. And, uh, and, and talkative is just talking this good game and, and, um, um, uh, faithful says to, um, no, Christian says to faithful, listen, I don't think that's, uh, I don't think that's the real thing that you're hearing. And so, uh, uh he says, well, all right, well, how am I to find out? And he says, well, go asking these questions. Go ask talkative this and see what he says, and then we'll find out. And so he goes to him, um, and he says, tell me, um, uh, give me a sign. He says, well, if you please, propound another sign how this work of grace discovereth itself where it is. Now, (laughs) he says, okay, uh, talkative, hey, big shot. Tell me, um, what does a work of grace look like? That's what that means. <laughs> now, I'm just going to read you a little bit of this, and then I'm going to read you something else that you will understand. But um, uh, so, and, and talkative says, well, I, you know, I don't know. Why don't you tell me? And so faithful launches into a, a description of a work of grace. Okay? You with me still? Or are you going to sleep yet? Um, let me just read it real quick. He says, a work of grace in the soul discovereth itself either to him that hath it or to standers by. To him that hath it, thus it gives him conviction of sin, especially that's found in his... And he goes on. Now, put that aside for a moment. A friend of mine who went to seminary with me took that book and put it in language that could be understood by us, you know, Kingsbury graduates. Um, and... And so it's the same thing, but it's different language. Um, I mean, just some easier language. All right. So he's same thing. Same. I, I want to read you what my friend John Musselman wrote 
in, in describing a work of grace in terms that I think you'll get. I just wanted you to appreciate the real thing. That's why I lot of reason about that. And I knew Floyd was coming. That's not true. Um, <clears throat> listen to this. A work of grace in the soul manifests itself either to him that has it or to those who watch him. Do you hear that? If this has happened, it manifests itself to the one to whom it's happened and to people who watch him. Standers by. To the one who has it. Here's what it looks like. That's not, here's what it looks like to the one who has it. Number one, it brings conviction of sin, especially of the defilement of his nature. Okay, guys, are you still with me? What does this look like? What does this work look like if it took place in the soul of a human being? The first thing that you will notice is that it brings a conviction of sin, especially of the defilement of his nature. You know what this looks like, guys? Number one, it looks like this. Number, one of the first things that happened is that we are more aware of our sin than ever before. And by the way, Not just our sin. Oh, I lost my temper with my daughter the other day. No, 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 no. That too. But he says, especially uh, of the defilement of his nature. It's not that he's so aware that I did a bad thing and I, you know, I got crossed with my wife and I kicked the dog. It's he's overcome with the defilement of his inner man. He understands perhaps for the first time, I am so broken. And I see a defilement that goes deep in me. You do know that about yourself, don't you? Guys, you're not a sinner because you sinned. You sinned because you were a sinner. At the root of your being... There's illness. There's self-consumption. There's a love of the wicked. There's a pornography that, not the internet, it is a pornography in our inner man. In this work of grace. That's one of the first things that we notice. Secondly, um, oh, uh, the following, if he does not find mercy at God's hand by faith in Jesus Christ, he is sure to be damned. That is, I am so awakened to the defilement of my own nature, if I don't find mercy at God's hand, I know I'll be damned. This sense that he produces, this sense that he has produces sorrow and shame within him. Number two, I'm, I'm, I'm name, numbering these. Number two, he finds moreover, that the Savior of the world is revealed in him and the absolute necessity of giving his whole life wholeheartedly to him. The second characteristic of this work of grace is that we finally figure out that Jesus can no longer be peripheral. He's got to be at the center of things. He has been an idea and a religious figure for way too long. This thing, this calling produces in us, oh my, 
He cannot any longer be on the periphery of my life. He must be in the center of it. And then the third thing. He also finds himself hungering and thirsting after him. All right. What does this thing look like? Number one, it produces a conviction of my sin in a way that I've never known, particularly not of the things that I did on the outside, but the defilement on the inside. Number two, it produces in me a determination to have him not as a peripheral religious figure, but at the center of my whole soul. And thirdly, it produces hungers and thirsts for righteousness. That's what this is. You got that? (laughs) I said in my grace group Sunday night, you know, guys, perhaps the most encouraging statement I find in the New Testament is the one that I just alluded to. And it's, it's found in Matthew chapter 5 or 6. Because when I, when I begin to measure how I'm doing with my tongue, oh, I'm not doing very good with that. I didn't do that. That's pretty bad. <laughs> when I start measuring how I do with my eyes, oh, I'm not doing very good. That's not, that's not, oh, no, not, not, not a good thing. Not a pretty, and when I start thinking about how I'm, how I'm using my hands or my time, I, when I start thinking about, am I less selfish? I, you know, I am, I am brought to the conclusion of this is not a very good example of anything. But there is one thing that I can point to. And I can point to a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. I may not have attained a whole lot of it. But I got that. I may not be the most humble person you've ever met. (laughs) But I want you to know, I find humility beautiful. And I want more of it. This work of grace produces a greater sense of my own defilement It produces the determination to have Jesus no longer on the periphery, but at the center. And it produces a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. I didn't do too good with this and those and these. But I have that hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's my only comfort just about at times, folks. Do you have that? People have been called, haven't they? That's great. Lord, I I pray that you will use my vain babblings to uh, instruct your people. I pray that they might find um, a measure of light and accuracy and faithfulness and loyalty to your word. And that they might be able to um, sense in in themselves this work of grace that you have performed sovereignly. Um, A work that you initiated. A work that has so overcome us that we can never again stay at the tax table. That we can never again enjoy filth because you've done something so different to us. And, and we are, from the inside out, becoming newer and newer people. Encourage your people by this grand work known as an effectual call that you have wrought in all of us, bringing us to the place where we find a greater conviction of sin, a greater 
determination to have Jesus at the center of our lives and a greater hunger and thirst for holy things. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and good night.